0: I'll be reading from Jonah, chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals?
1: Thank you so much, Bill, for reading our scripture text this morning. Finishing out... The book of Jonah, what an interesting end to a book, right? You know, uh, Benjamin Franklin once said, anger is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. As we wrap up Jonah this morning, we're going to talk a bit about anger, Jonah's anger in particular. Of all the books of the Bible, Jonah has one of the most unexpected, overlooked endings that we see, especially when you read children's Bibles versions of this. A lot of times they'll cut it off with, you know, he answered, uh, he prayed in the, uh, in the belly of the fish, he was bit back up, and then he goes to Nineveh. Some of them just finish there. Some of them continue and, and share the Nineveh part and people repenting, uh, kind of shortchange a little bit of uh, exactly what happened there. But often, children's Bibles will leave out that last chapter with the worm and the plant and the scorching wind and Jonah just being angry and bitter and all of this. has a really interesting end. Probably the closest correlation that we have in the New Testament is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son that we acted out here earlier with the kids. Uh, You know, we most often focus on the uh, um, son who ran away, squandered all his wealth, the father who welcomes him at the end, returns home in humility uh, after that. But there's another son in that parable, the older son, who is mad that his father throws a party and he refuses to come inside. And... In the same way, both this older son and Jonah are mad at the grace and the compassion that has been shown by God here. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about that anger, avoiding the anger traps that we kind of see in this text as we reflect on that a little bit this morning. I want to remind us that anger is a secondary emotion. I think I've heard that before. Anger is not a primary emotion itself. but builds off of other uh, more primary emotions for us. So usually it's triggered by something else like sadness or fear, anxiety, or frustration. Uh, We have to kind of dig a little bit in the text of Jonah to try to uncover what exactly it is that might be triggering his anger because it just mentions anger here. We might note that he seems to have this frustration from unmet expectations. He has an expectation of what should have happened, and it doesn't happen. And so he's angry. So he has expectations of God, expectations of Nineveh, expectations maybe even of himself. Let's talk about some lessons we can learn reflecting on those this morning. First, I I think that we can learn we should not distort God's word to justify our own feelings. What do I mean by that? Jonah quotes scripture here to justify his anger to God. We read part of that in Exodus 34, 6-7 uh, through 7 earlier this morning in our text. Uh, Jonah prays, uh, isn't, he says to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried, to, what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Well, he's... Quoting from Exodus thirty-four here. And the full text does say that, but then it also says, You maintain your love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion of sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents, third and the fourth generation. Now we might have our own questions about this, uh, that particular text and the part of it. I think more often when we read that, we question the punishment part of it. Saying like, Oh God, aren't you gonna be merciful? Aren't you gonna be compassionate? And we saw um, even some other texts along with that reading this morning of reminding God of who he is, that he is merciful, he's compassionate, He shows mercy to us. But that's not the part that Jonah has an issue with in, in the text. He, he conveniently lives out the bit about uh, the guilty not being unpunished. He's basically accusing God of being unjust, saying you aren't punishing the people who ought to be punished. I think both of those things uh, kind of accusations that we can give to God do the same thing, whether we, we are accusing God of being too rigid, of not remembering his mercy, or whether we are accusing God of being too soft on evil, evil and wickedness. Both accusations are simplifying God, right? And both options place our view of what is right or wrong in a given situation above God's view and activity. We are basically saying, uh, We believe that what we have determined is right in this scenario is what you ought to be doing, God. And so if you are not doing that, you must be deficient in some way. Even more importantly here, both of those options selectively omit or ignore part of who God is and who he said he is in order to justify our emotional response here to the situation before us. So Jonah is angered that God is showing mercy to people who have caused such trouble for his own countrymen. He doesn't think that Nineveh deserves this kind of mercy. He might even fear that this mercy is going to open up for him and for others, further hurt. Because if Nineveh isn't true to their repentance in the long run, they might wind up hurting other people more, hurting his people, hurting himself even. Jonah expects that God ought to destroy Nineveh to keep him and others safe. So maybe he's upset. Maybe he's fearful here, and that is expressing itself in anger. That legitimate, uh, th- that emotion, is a legitimate one right? to have that emotion. But then, from that emotion, he jumps to a judgment. God must not be just. What he could have said was, "God, am I missing something? I thought you cared about justice." But it seems like your mercy is leaving us vulnerable here, that somehow you are unbalanced in your mercy and in your justice. Instead, Jonah selectively reads and quotes so that he can be justified in his anger. He stubbornly refuses to listen to any response from God. And wow, don't we all do the same thing? We do the same thing with God a lot. Christianity is inherently offensive. Because God is completely holy, and we're decidedly not that most of the time. We will inevitably come face to face with Jesus as he truly is, and either be convicted or offended. As we need, something about us needs to come into alignment with who God is and what his will is. Jesus says some pretty difficult things to put others first, to forgive, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to repent. And die to self. These are not easy things. It requires us to give up of ourselves, to lay down what we think is best and right, to experience transformation. Here, I'd suggest that if your faith never challenges the things that you've always aligned yourself with, the assumptions that you've always had, then you've might, uh, likely missed the narrow gate way to Jesus. I say all that to say it's inevitable that God's truth will at some point face against our sinful hearts. But the question is, will we do like Jonah and distort God to either make him more palatable or to be more easily dismissed? Or will we allow God's truth to change us, to see God as he is, to wrestle with what this means for us, to say, God, am I missing something? How can I understand you better what you're doing in this situation? Jonah chose to just change his conception of God. But that's only one trap that he fell into. You can also learn, don't give up on God's world before God does. Jonah had certain expectations of Nineveh uh, and how, who they are, who, how they are, how they should be, and what the response should be to them. Part of his anger here is that he's already determined that Nineveh was a hopeless case. There was nothing that could be done for them. They were wicked and irredeemable. So he is actively hoping against their repentance. He camps outside the city to see if God would change His mind. Now, there's some interesting contrasts here, uh, both between Jonah and his earlier self, as well as Jonah and some other biblical characters that we know of. So first, uh, I want to draw a contrast. These are both occur in verse five of their respective chapters. And verse five of uh chapter one, it says that all the sailors were afraid. Uh, each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship as when a big storm is happening. Right, Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Whenever it was Jonah's fault what was happening, he slept like a baby. He had no problem falling asleep and, and having seemingly no care in the world. And in chapter 4, verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now he's wide awake. He is eager to see what might happen, right? When it's someone else's uh, evil that should be punished, he is eager to see what's going to happen here. I would also confess this to Abraham. If you remember, in Genesis chapter 18, this is right before the destruction, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, these three mysterious visitors have showed up to to Abraham, and and the Lord speaks to them mentioning what is about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew Lot is living. And Abraham gets into this conversation with him, kind of trying to negotiate it down to see if there might be some mercy that can be shown to him. Abraham approached the Lord and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He's doing the same thing. Jonah is appealing to God's character, asking, will you really act this way? And if you remember, he goes on more. Well, if there's 40, if there's 30, 20, if there's even 10, even 10, I just, will you be merciful and compassionate, gracious? Jonah was waiting in hope of judgment. Abraham is waiting in hope of mercy, being shown here. Jonah's almost like an anti Abraham. You can almost imagine him saying, Lord, what if you find at least 10 wicked people in Nineveh? Will you destroy it then? right? Seems comical, right? But it's not because Jonah's attitude doesn't just affect him. It affects Nineveh in the long run. Think about this. After finally being convinced to obey, Jonah had left the job unfinished. He went to Nineveh preaching this, and they all repented from the least to the greatest. Everyone in Nineveh said, yes, we'll change our ways. Maybe God will show us mercy. This is the kind of thing a prophet hopes for, right? This is exactly the thing that you want to happen. What ought to have been the next step is for him to stick around and say, "Okay, if you want to be faithful to this God, this is what it looks like, to teach them the ways of God, to disciple them in that way. Instead, he packs up his bags, goes, and he just camps out outside the city waiting to see if they'll fail. Because they don't really know what, what's right to do. And if God will, after all, show this judgment
2: to them. Now, I can't really
1: think of a time in my own life when I've actively hoped for someone else to get something bad coming to, to them because they have done bad themselves. But if I am honest, I can think of people that I gave up hope on. People in my own life that... I I, thought, there's no way that they'll ever come to Jesus. They are so far gone. There's no way they'll ever make that choice in their life. And I kind of stopped praying for them. I I stopped even thinking about whether they might change their ways. And then they did. Then they came to Jesus. And I I found myself having to admit to God, I gave up hope way before you did. His hope outlasted mine for this person. How much more could I have been investing in those people's lives that could have helped them make that decision earlier, could have helped turn them away from things that were not just harming themselves, but other people They were led astray. There are a ton of people out there living with destructive beliefs and behaviors, the kind that have both eternal and immediate impact. And I wonder how many people continue on in that pattern because we are unwilling to interact with them, to show them the ways of Jesus, because we've already determined that they are beyond hope. We wouldn't possibly listen, even because we kind of want to see them self-destruct. We've been wounded ourselves by something they've done, and we want to see them get what's, what's coming to them. But God hasn't given up hope on them yet. Don't let your anger make you into a Jonah when you could be an Abraham. Don't let your anger distance you from God because you can't stand to be around the people that God loves. Don't give up on God's world, God's people, when he is still not yet done with
2: them. And
1: don't underestimate God's grace for others or for ourselves. Jonah's reaction to God's mercy for the Ninevites, it showed he really didn't understand the full nature of God's grace for sinners. But neither did he understand it for himself. It's almost as if he says, God, if this is what you're really like, you might as well just kill me. Just let me die. I'm so angry. Just let me die. Jonah seems to expect that he is just incompatible with this world of God's. If this is what the world is like, I must not fit into it. But just as God had not yet given up on Nineveh,
2: God had not yet given up on Jonah. God sends a plant. Give Jonah shade. It's a sign here.
1: Is the plant then a worm to chew up the plant? A scorching heat to make him miss the plant? All of this object lesson to teach Jonah about the value of life. If this fleeting plant is worth caring about, how much more is this great city and all of the people and animals that live within it? All these strange signs, the plant, the worm, the scorching wind, they're all grace. They're these special provisions and revelations gifted to Jonah to gently, personally reach out to him, to show him God's heart, to try to, try to get him on board with what's happening. God didn't have to send these signs to Jonah, right?
2: But he does, because God is gracious,
1: patient, and it's just who he is. It happens the same way in the parable of the prodigal son. The father didn't have to go out to the older son. He could have just let the older son miss out on the party, but he goes out. He pleads with his son. What's going on here? Can't you see that I've been
2: with you this whole time? Interestingly, we don't ever get to see Jonah's
1: response to this sign. It leaves us with a cliffhanger. Both the whole book of Jonah and this parable of the prodigal son end the same way where we don't get to see the response at the end. Does Jonah remain in the scorching heat outside the city? Does the older son stay pouting outside the party, refusing to go in? We don't know. And that's intentional. It's supposed to invite us into the choice. If we are like Jonah, if we are like the older son, what will we do? What choice will we make? Will we let our anger at God's mercy or at our unmet expectations, will we let that distance us from God? Or will we soften our heart? Let God speak to us. Teach us his ways too often like Jonah, rationalizing our anger, being quick to judge and dismiss, slow to trust in God's grace. We're called to be like Jesus, more and more every day, who is consistently patient, who is full of hope that others will change, full of confidence in God's love for ourselves and for others. What will we choose today? Right.
2: Lord, we do pray that we
1: might hear you and respond to you as you are. Jesus, I think of your interactions all throughout the Gospels, both with, with people who are you know, usually thought of as, as sinners, even identified as such, that you have such grace and compassion, that you invite them to eat, that you, uh, you invite them into your friend circle. And you do that even with the religious people who you disagree with so much uh, and, and get into arguments about. You have the patience to have the arguments with them. The people who think they don't, they don't even need any help. If you give them signs and parables and, and you speak
2: to them, because your hope is still there for them.
1: The Lord, whichever part of the spectrum that we land on today. We pray that you might soften our hearts, that we might come to you, realize our need for you. In the midst of our brokenness, our unmet expectations, our fear, our anxiety, our frustration, our sadness, even if that bubbles up into anger, Lord, we pray, Lord, that it might melt
2: away. Humility, activity Enjoy.